Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. Um, this is Louisa Wilcox with the Grizzly Times, and I'm delighted to be here today with uh, former congressman from Montana, Pat Williams, um, who is a, uh, a champion of uh, education, the arts, the environment, freedom of speech, working <laughs> families, and he served um, from 1979 to 1997 as, uh, as a U.S. representative from the state of Montana, the longest anyone has served uh, from the state of Montana. Um, Pat is now a senior fellow with and a fellow in legislative policy associate for the Center for the Rocky Mountain West. He serves on a slew of boards that I need not mention. And uh, thanks so much here, to, uh, Pat, for, for joining me today. And among those accolades should be I know you, Louisa Wilcox, and that says something about my choice in good people. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Pat. Um, yeah, so I've, I've been listening to some of your interviews that are wonderful. Uh, thank you. You clearly have the storyteller gene. And in one, you said that you didn't come to Congress as a conservationist, but you left as one. And um, maybe you can talk about why and how that happened. Well, I came to the Congress uh, as a, you know, a Butte guy, and uh, uh, Butte people, interestingly enough, came to the conservation, the environmental uh, understanding and legacy a little late, uh, because jobs were always at the forefront of the Butte economy. Um, and so I, I can't I can't really say I was a conservationist or an environmentalist when I got to Congress. Although I was very interested in environmentalism, when I got to the Congress, I quickly picked up on the fact that uh, the extractive corporations had one view, and most Montanans had a different view of what we could do uh, with the public land, whether we should drill it and blast it and scoop it, or whether we should try to preserve it. And it did seem to me growing up in Butte that maybe we had drilled and scooped enough, <laughs> at least in one city. And uh, so I, then it was fairly easy for me to, to see which way I was going. Mm -hmm. Well, you spent many years trying to pass a statewide uh, wilderness bill for Montana. I mean, you did protect the Lee Metcalf uh, wilderness and the Greater Yellowstone. Thank you so much for that, as well as the rattlesnake. Uh, and you saved the Bob Marshall from drilling and oil and gas development uh, uh, that uh, James Watt, then Secretary of Interior, was all about trying to do. Um, and it was overwhelming that our paths first crossed in the 1980s when I served as a program director back in the day for the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. And I went back to D.C. countless times, and your office was always open, and your staff, and you Thank were you. always ready to talk about wilderness. And you knew so much about each and every area that we were discussing in a large state. Why did you put so much skin into that game of protecting Montana wilderness? Well, uh, uh, because I had become aware that uh, the, pub the wild public lands were shrinking, 
I think Lee Metcalf, former senator, great senator, Lee Metcalf's term was melting like a snowbank, uh, snowball on a mm -hmm. July day. Yeah. And uh, you know, once you get a whole look, a grand vision of the public lands, their potential, uh, the dangers to them, um, as you do if you're really engaged with environmentalism out this way, or if you get to Washington and you're able to get a broad look at it through your committee assignments, then uh, it seems to me you can more easily come to your senses about what should be done. And uh, um, Another thing occurred to me, though, Louisa, in the um, in the 1980s, uh, Butte was in a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. The pit had closed. It was becoming. Uh, it was. I was becoming aware of a changing Montana economy. It wasn't obvious in those early 80s, mm -hmm. but it seemed to me there was a certain inevitability to the fact that we were going to go as a state from one type of a prime economy to another kind of prime economy. And the truth of it was now, looking back, we moved from an extractive economy uh, to something else, to a conservation or a tourism economy, a different kind of an economy that produced more jobs, by the way, than the extractive economy mm -hmm. had produced uh, in, during the last 75 years or so. Um, and so um, uh, I chose uh, to be on the House Natural Resources Committee. In those days, as you remember, it was called Interior, yeah. and Morris Udall was chairman of the full committee and a wonderful fellow named John Cyberling was right. chairman of the subcommittee. Yeah. I got on those two, uh, got on the full committee and then of course by dint of membership on the full committee I became a member of, uh, of that subcommittee which was National Parks and Public Lands. So uh, here was a young congressman from Montana that had all these wild but undesignated places unprotected places virtually right and uh, it was uh, it was my task to figure out how to how to protect them mm -hmm. and how to use allow industry to use what was available to them that was legitimate right. harvest right. Uh, and so uh, I, I away I went well it was pretty prescient to actually anticipate in the early 80s the, the what the economies of especially in western Montana around Yellowstone, Glacier, and Missoula, what they were going to look like. Yeah. Um, and they have been through this sort of bottleneck of a, of a transition to much more tourism, people settling here, opening businesses here who want to fish the rivers and climb the mountains yeah. and see wildlife. Yeah. I mean, we really have been through kind of a major transformation economically. We really have, and it has, uh, it has shifted priorities in the Rocky Mountain West uh, and particularly in uh, states such as Montana that were so heavily dependent at least in western Montana on on the uh, on the extractable resource. Mm -hmm. Eastern Montana is depending on the resource too but it's farming. Mm -hmm. Out here it was extraction and uh, you know it, it just seemed to me that those days were going, going and now not gone, but 
in a, uh, in a much different economic condition than they were in the early 80s, 70s, 60s, 50s, and way back. Right, right. All the way to the 1890s. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have some of the biggest, wildest places left. And uh, so, so worth protecting. And of course, yeah. you know, the reason we have wildlife like grizzly bears and wolves is because we've got so much land that has been protected, or is at least in a roadless condition. But uh, absolutely, uh, you know, you can't have great hunting and fishing if you don't have healthy headwaters and good habitat for wildlife. Mm -hmm. And uh, hunting and fishing is a major, major economic engine in Montana. Yeah. There was one issue that brought us together back in the day uh, related to the Gallatin National Forest mm -hmm. and the legacy of checkerboard inholdings from the old railroad days and the Gallatin Range, is, which is the largest unprotected range in the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem, National Forest Roadless Lands, um, was threatened by development of a certain developer named Tim Blixeth, who we probably remember mm -hmm. kind of fondly, I don't know about that, but um, it, 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 the threat of development in the core of the Gallatin Range prompted the public, and you heard from them from our part of the world, to demand consolidation of the public lands. And you, court, you responded by putting together a really complicated land exchange bill. Can you talk about why that mattered to you? Well, uh, it was a bit of a Hobson's choice because Tim Blexeth or his company mm -hmm. uh, owned a lot of that land north of Yellowstone and he was bound and determined um, he was gonna he was gonna harvest it and uh, I don't know if I had the idea or somebody gave the idea to me you forget over oh, through the years but <laughs> In any event, uh, I said to him, uh, Tim, can we arrange an air flight for you mm. so that you can fly over Yellowstone and put yourself in the paws of those animals ah. and uh, see whether you think they need a little more roaming room mm -hmm. uh, than they might have just within the park. And uh, he came back, asked to see me right away and said, you're right, you're wow. right. Where can I go? Huh. What could I trade for? I'm not giving it away. Uh -huh. right. <laughs> and uh, we traded him for the area up around uh, Big Sky Lone Mountain, mm -hmm. uh, some of which is where the uh, private club is now, so, right. yeah, which he started. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, all in all, I think it was a, I think it was a pretty good trade. And I think concepts such as the Greater Yellowstone, Mm -hmm. Or for that matter, the Greater Yosemite, mm -hmm. which almost doesn't exist, right. or the Greater Glacier, which almost doesn't exist, uh, are really good concepts. Yeah, I know. I know people don't want to. Some people don't want to broaden the boundaries of our national parks, mm -hmm. but we can be careful with regard to zoning the the buffers, right. the landscape buffer around those parks. Right. Absolutely. Well, and that that brings up another issue that we worked on uh, many ago, which was protecting the hot water aquifer around Yellowstone Park. So, you know, in their wisdom, Congress in 1872 didn't know where the hot water was that fueled the geysers, and, and we woke up one day in the mid-80s to realize this Church Universal and Triumphant was, had drilled and uh, was potentially going to affect Yellowstone. So it sort of made the larger point that we have to... Um, uh, protect, a, have a bigger vision of, of landscape protection than simply the boundaries of the park. Yeah. 
I made the statement uh, somewhere in the in the Congress. I suppose I was in a committee hearing at the time, and I said, "Look, I intend." Well, there were some questions about why was I interested in the hot water drilling outside of Yellowstone Park, mm -hmm. and I made the statement that uh, that I intend uh, to protect Yellowstone Park and to protect it in an ironclad, copper-riveted way, <laughs> legislative way. And Mo Udall, the former, God bless him, the former chairman of the Interior Committee knew I was from Butte, and right. he said into the microphone, you'll notice, members and staff and uh, audience, that Pat Williams always includes copper-riveted in everything he... <laughs> <laughs> But uh, you can't allow drilling outside of the first national park or hot water uh, uh, features. <laughs> God, you can't draw. We don't know where all that hydrology goes. Right. And the Church Universal Triumphant and Guru Ma, who's dead now, bless her, but yeah. she, I got to know her. Yeah. And uh, 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 they were snuggled right up against the park. Geologically, they were right up against it and right. uh, doing their drilling. If they'd have gotten away with that geothermal drilling, others were standing by ready to pounce and do their own drilling. Absolutely, and we're already sort of getting a sense of that out of Gardner. Yeah. That, uh, it wouldn't take very much to open the floodgates. So when there are those kind of dangers, I just think you stop them when you see them. Mm -hmm. Well, you did stop them. And, yeah, we did. Uh, and there was no way the state of Montana at that time was going to stop them, and it, meant it, it was one of those issues that... Congress had to act, and you saw it, and you yeah. did it. And it was it was incredibly successful. fortunate. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Another while while I'm on it, issues that we worked together on was the gold mine proposed at the doorstep of Yellowstone Park, in the heart of uh, great grizzly bear habitat, wolf habitat, uh, headwaters of three major rivers. Um, the project was opposed by the local community, of course, in Cook City, but that was a very tiny. Uh, community, but also the Park Service weighed in, EPA eventually got involved, and uh, finally the Clinton administration said that they wanted to help stop this company from proceeding, but uh, of course the Clinton administration turned to you um, and asked for your advice and your direction, and uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that campaign. Was there anything surprising in that uh, effort to you? I was a little surprised, uh, and shouldn't have been, but I was a little surprised with how earnest uh, Bill Clinton, President Clinton was about uh, protecting that park, at, protecting the park at that moment. Mm -hmm. How absolutely determined he became. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't go to him and explain it to him. Uh, others did. And uh, then he had uh, Katie McGinty, uh, one of the leading environmental staff people in the administration, uh, get in touch with me and privately and quietly um, we began to put a deal together to stop the mine and get them out of there. And uh, uh, but it was uh, it was Bill Clinton's. Bill Clinton called me twice. Wow! And said, Pat, what are you doing up there about this? We got to. <laughs> this was after we had moved on it. Oh wow! And uh, he wanted to know. Uh, you know, he said we're not keeping the effort a secret anymore. They kept it a secret in the beginning, yeah. so they wouldn't have a lot of. Yeah people on both sides of the issue uh, flying uh, blind at it. Mm -hmm. and um, uh, But even after that, he would call me and say, is the 
the park okay? Is that mine gone yet? And, uh, so he was really in it. <laughs> well, he clearly was into it. Uh, you know, his final speech in the celebration, you know, some places are too yeah. more valuable than gold. And yeah, right, right. one of those. Oh, yeah, wonderful. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, he was really enthusiastic. But it, it took a village. I mean, it took uh, everybody. Yeah. Uh, from the tiny town of Cook City to the Park Service and you and, no. and the no. president to stop that. I no. mean, that was no. one lesson I learned that, that you know, the tremendous amount of power behind the mining industry. In case we have any doubt, of course, you're from Butte, so you never had any doubt. Well, as you know, public law has stood all these years that uh, it says, in effect, the highest and best use of the public's land is mining. Yep. We tried to knock that silly notion down in mining reform bills that we could never quite get past. Yeah, I mean, it's just so insane. The same year the Yellowstone Park was protected, they passed the 1872 yeah. mining law, yeah. and it pretty much gives carte blanche to mining companies across the country, and they didn't have to pay any royalties yeah. or anything. You yeah. know, the public doesn't benefit from what's done on public land. Yeah. What, what do you think is good? I mean, you tried to reform it. Certainly Congressman Udall did. Other people threw, threw themselves into the gears of reforming that law. Well, what's it going to take? Well, mining was uh, more prominent back then, when, mm -hmm. and so their lobby was more effective. Right. I actually think now uh, you'd have a better chance of uh, changing that law to make sense out of it wow. than we did then. Yeah. yeah. Need to get a, I think it could be done. Congress, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, you got to get, oh, people got to throw themselves across the tracks for these things. Right, right. I mean, you literally, uh, in some places, you have to put your own career on the line and say, no, no, we're going to do this. Go home and explain it to people uh -huh. so they know what their member, yeah. House and Senate are doing, but do it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. that's the trick. And I think without that real heavy employment base that mining had for so many years in right. the West, without that, they don't have those workers to push in the center of the poker table. <laughs> right. You see what I mean? Yeah. They, yeah. Those chips are gone to them now. Yeah. Uh, productivity. Yeah. It isn't that they don't still mine, it's that they don't use people much to do it right. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Technology and the streamlining of the industry. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah. That's, yeah. A good, that's a good point. But throwing yourself on the tracks, uh, you know, I don't, yeah, it's yeah. a lot to ask people to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, so you, you chose to leave Congress in 1997. Why? Well, I thought, well, uh, primarily I missed home. Uh -huh. People that know the West, and I think particularly Montana, maybe we're parochial about it, but I think people that know Montana and leave it are homesick all their lives. And uh, Carol and I were both very homesick in Montana. Yeah. And uh, our children all decided to go to school out here when they were old enough to be off on their own. Right. So there was something about the Williams family in Montana. Yeah. And uh, we were attracted by it. And so homesickness primarily brought me home. Yeah. I also had, you know, when I started thinking about, I want to go home, I want to go home because I was homesick, then my mind turned to, well, what would I do if I came home? Right. Well, I'm a teacher by profession. I thought, well, I'd go to, go to the university or Montana State, one of the colleges, and teach about what had happened in Washington uh -huh. while well, I was still young enough to remember what had happened <laughs> in Washington. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, and Carol was delighted to be coming back home. Yeah, absolutely. So home I came. Yeah. I couldn't, uh, 
I, I, there were several times in my career, I'll just tell you this story as a, a kind of a good story. Uh, you may have heard it before somewhere, but uh, uh, there were a couple of attempts to have me come home uh, prior to the time I did and run for governor. Oh, right. Yeah, and uh, a major attempt in the very early 90s. And at that time, I had talked to a lot of people and got a lot of conflicting ideas, and I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go see Mike Mansfield. And so Mike, Mike was, um, uh, I guess he was home from Japan by then, or had he not right. gone yet? No, I think he was back home. Yeah. And I went to see him. And he asked me, just, you know, he was totally impassive. Right. He sat there and just looked at me, nodded, asked permission to smoke his pipe. And I, I said, oh, sure, that'd be all right with me, Mike, as long as you blow some my way. And he thought that was comical. I got a little half smile out of him. Yeah. And uh, he said to me, well, do you think you want to go on to the Senate, Pat? I said, nope. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, you really want to be governor? And I said, well, I'm not sure if I want to be governor or I want to be in Montana. But I told people I wouldn't use the house as a stepping stone to run right. for anything else. I promised people that. And right. it's hard for me to hard for me to break that promise. So we talked about it back and forth. And it was all kind of, I'm sure, just sort of quizzical to him. And then he said to me, all right, Pat, I'll tell you what you ought to do. He put the pipe back in the ashtray. And he said, you do... What I always did at times like this in my life, you go ask your wife. He said, your wife cares more about you and Montana than anyone else in the world. He said, I know your mom Libby's dead now, so he knew everybody. Yeah. So he said, uh, but uh, he said, you go ask Carol and then uh, uh, consider her advice uh, uh, more than anybody's. And with that, he got up and said, Pat, I'm glad you came. It's nice to see you. That was, the meeting was over. Hurrah. As I was going down the hallway, he had forgotten to say goodbye to me, so I heard him yell, Pat. And I turned around from distance of about 30 feet, and uh, he said, uh, with the end of his pipe kind of half pointing at me, he said, Tapper Light, that was his oh, thing, you know, from the, right. his days working in the mines in Butte. Oh. That was the last time I ever saw Mike. Really? Yeah. How old was he then? I mean, oh, he was probably 91 or two, yeah. maybe. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I mean, we've been blessed in Montana with... Marvelous. With, I mean, you included. But, well, you know, I don't know, but thank Mike you. Mike Mansfield and Lee Metcalf. Yeah, and, yeah. And early on, Jeanette and, yeah, and uh, uh, many others, yeah. uh, B.K. Wheeler and others, yeah. Well, you, one of my early trips back to Washington, you took me and a couple others to see the Jeanette Rankin statue, which we yeah. never would have found on our own, yeah. by the way. Yeah. Uh, and it was quite the moment. She, yeah. she was quite the... I met Jeanette. Time. I met her. I opened up the Washington Post one day, and, and above the fold was a story on the front page was a photo on the front page, and in the photo was a, some uh, women carrying a banner, a huge banner, all the way across the street, wow. at Pennsylvania Avenue. And the banner said, the Jeanette Rankin Brigade. And there was this little woman, who I thought was dead, who looked like and was Jeanette Rankin at the head of the group. And uh, oh my wow. God, yeah. And so I got to know her and uh, oh my gosh. I asked her one time, I said, Jeanette, what do you want to be most remembered for? And she said, well, of course, everybody 
thinks it's the war. And she said, I'd vote against both wars yeah, yeah. again if I had the chance. Yeah. But she said, you know, Pat, my life is about equality. It's always been about equity. Interesting. She said, uh, if war broke out and I was to vote for it, uh, she said a lot of things would happen that violated equality and equity. And the most important to me was that my brother, Wellington, would have had to go and would have had to have gone and fight. Yeah. And I couldn't. And she took one hand in both of hers hands and she said, Pat, that's not fair. Wow. And I've always, I've told that to several historians, but I never see it as a reason wow. for her vote no. I've never, I've never <laughs> right. heard that. Right. I, I love that story. Yeah. yeah, I mean, talk about another person who was prescient. Well, what's it like, you know, after all your many years in Congress and, and um, in politics to look at the current administration, uh, the current Congress, What's it like to look at D.C. from the distance of Montana? What do you think the Trump administration is doing to our civil society? And what's the way out of this predicament? Well, one of the first things I learned on coming home uh, when I was a, a watcher and a listener instead of a creator from Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. I've always been a co co Congress buff you know, knew what was going on there. But as I got back home, I tried to look and listen and figure out what, what is the difference between what you know is going on in Congress and what the constituency suppose is going on in Congress, what they think we're doing back there. Mm -hmm. So now suddenly I was a constituent again and just right. able to view it that way. Right. And uh, it, 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 the, the, you know, what I kind of picked up is really too long for any interview, but essentially um, it was that people see politics in a kind of a shorthand. Hmm. They, they hear a slogan, they see a rumor, they, they, they pick something up and they make a judgment out of it. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because we're not a democracy, we're a republic where people vote for others to go do the business of government for them. And so it's okay that we're uh, a little removed. Frankly, public has become too far removed mm. and don't know enough about it. But, right. but I began to get a much better sense of why there is this reality gap, information gap between the government and its people, the Congress and the voters. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, so uh, that's been interesting. Um, with regard to the current administration, I know Donald Trump personally. I've been with him over a four or five hour, a couple of time periods. And, and uh, I think the president is, uh, I think the president is mentally uh, disabled. Uh, he is so narcissistic, so much about Donald Trump, that everything in his life revolves around him. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't think he can get out from under that. I think it's an illness with him. Mm -hmm. And having a president who thinks the presidency 
And, you know, Bill Clinton used to say, well, the first thing I noticed when I left the presidency was they don't play that tune anymore when I enter the room. Right. Well, yeah. uh, Donald Trump will never get over that, so they're down to playing that tune when he, when, he, mm -hmm. when he enters the room. My God, that'd be a terrible blow mm -hmm. for him. Bill Clinton's kidding about it. Mm -hmm. uh, tr Trump takes this stuff uh, with regard to his own power. He takes it far, far too seriously. He thinks that the, uh, that's why he wants a parade, right? Parade, and all this, military, yeah. he, he thinks it's all about him. Right. And uh, so, so I worry about the country with Donald Trump in charge. Uh, and I worry about a country where as many citizens voted for him as did. I worry about those folks. Mm -hmm. Some of them are friends of mine, but right. um, yeah. troubled. I've got some too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. they all do. Yeah, so what? what's your suggestion? I'm sure that students at the University of Montana who you run into, yeah. you know, look to you for guidance. Um, what would you, you know, what's your suggestion to younger people? Just in terms of... Well, get in it. I mean, yeah. get in it. Uh, yeah. Some way or other, uh, get your feet wet. The, the first, the, one of the first members of Congress was a fellow from Massachusetts named Fisher Ames. Fisher Ames kept a diary, and that's how we... One of the primary ways we know went on, what occurred in the first Congress, is he had these uh, pretty good notes. Uh -huh. and, uh, uh, and we also have letters that he wrote home. People in those days were great letter writers. Right. And uh, uh, in one of the letters toward, as the Congress had adjourned uh, its session, the first session, uh, Fisher Ames wrote home to a, a friend and said, well, this is really going to be something. Uh, it's not a... Uh, uh, our, our, our government is not going to be a, a tall sailing ship like the British government. It isn't going to be very pretty. It's not going to ride high on the waves. But sailing ships usually come aground on the rocks. And if all hands aren't lost, the ship is. He said, no, this ship isn't going to, our ship isn't, of state isn't going to be like that at all. Hmm. It's a raft. Huh. And he said, it's, uh, it's not going to move very fast. And we're going to have a lot of trouble stopping it or turning it, either right. one. Yeah. <laughs> he said, well, the best thing about a raft is everybody on board gets their feet wet. Wow. I encourage my students and young people, get your feet wet. Right. Even if you only read the paper every day. Right. But yeah. you can do more than that. You yeah. can register to vote. You can get yeah. some other people to register to vote. You can listen yeah. to uh, speeches. Mm -hmm. You can go to campaign rallies. Uh, you can read about mm -hmm. things. Get your feet wet. Right. And uh, several of them, by the way, have run for public office and then right. told me or their friends, I'm only doing this to get my feet wet. Yeah. So I appreciate that. The story is getting retold, yeah. and other people getting their feedback. That's great. Well, so state wildlife wasn't really in your wheelhouse as a congressman. Management um, of it, yeah. But you're back in Montana and have been now for right. decades, and right. obviously interested. And we have a number of species that people really care about that right. are hugely controversial. Right. You know, bison that are getting slaughtered outside Almost. Yellowstone Park right now. Grizzly bears that have been delisted around Yellowstone and maybe soon up in Glacier. You know, wolves certainly, right. which, you know, when you were a congressman, wolves were brought back to Yellowstone, right. which was an amazing right. event. Um, and there is a lot of confusion and controversy about how the states, and I'm not just talking about Montana here, but how Western states tend to view wildlife. Mm -hmm. and, uh, 
and it gets to this issue of who owns wildlife, you know, whether it's just people within the state of Montana or, or mm -hmm. you know, the broader mm -hmm. national public and should the state mm -hmm. be considering the larger public interest. Mm -hmm. what, what you, what's your suggestions about how, I mean, do you think state wildlife management could be improved? And if so, what, what do you think, what are your suggestions? I don't have a, pres I don't have a prescription, so I'm not mm -hmm. close enough to it. Uh, I do think that vast acreages of Montana need to be preserved under one type of designation or management scheme or another mm -hmm. in order that these animals have appropriate uh, habitat and um, uh, maneuvering room. Right. Uh, and that means you've got to use a lot of public land. Right. We've got to allow these animals to use a lot of public yes, land. Indeed. Otherwise, it seems to me that's number one. If we don't do that, uh, I worry about it. Um, mm -hmm. What was the name of the rogue wolf? Was it Molly Brown? You remember the rogue wolf in Yellowstone? They recaptured and put her in the pen, and they called her Molly Brown because she had two kids but no dad. Oh, yeah. Somebody shot the alpha male. Yeah, right. Uh, I went to see Molly Brown one time uh -huh. in the pen. I went with Bob Barbie, bless oh, his okay, soul. Oh, yes. Uh -huh. And um, mm -hmm. one of the great experiences of my life is a huge pen in an unknown location in Yellowstone. Yeah. And um, the superintendent and I and a wildlife biologist with a leg of lamb over his shoulder, <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we, we walked in there and, and fed her by throwing the leg of lamb over. Uh -huh. She had her pups down in a little concealed area within the pen that right. the park service had built for her. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, this wolf, this female wolf, a couple of years old, uh -huh. Uh, was pacing back and forth against the far fence uh -huh. with her tongue hanging well below her jaw. Whoa. And the look in her eyes, uh, it looked as though there was a candle behind both eyes that glimmered and sparked uh -huh. and uh, uh, moved around as a, on a breezy day. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I realized it was it's the epitome of wildness for me. Yeah. That was the most wild thing I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. Well, if those things, whether they're grizzly bears or mm -hmm. uh, woodpeckers or, or mm -hmm. wolves are going to be protected, we've got to give them a home in which they can be protected. Right. And that's, in Montana, that means public land. Right. Uh, so the only suggestion I have about managing, because I'm far from an expert even close to it mm -hmm. in that, is uh, space. Mm -hmm. But space. the habitat issue, um, the world is getting smaller yeah. day by day. Um, right. More and more people are flocking to these, this part of the world, buying land, uh, starting you know, a chicken farm, and then wondering right. why grizzly bears are in their chickens yeah, and right. stuff like that. So, I mean, there there is a kind of erosion, steady erosion yeah. of the public land space. Right. And it's no accident that we have these species here in Montana where we have so much public land. Right. But, I mean, yeah, it, it no accident, to, right. It gets back to where we started this conversation, which was, are we going to protect our, you know, wilderness legacy right. or not? Right. Um, and, and you know, you, you mentioned uh, whose animals are these. In my view, uh, these animals belong to the world, but certainly to all Americans. 
And uh, it does seem to me that this may be an area for the Congress to step into and make a determination as to who animals are these and who should manage them oh. and how should they be managed and what group of people should have a say in that management. Right. 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 Uh, now, I personally think that the little I know about management, and I've dealt with managers and go out to see how they do it and all that, but the little stem the glass, the little I know about it says to me that uh, state managers, the people on the ground, be they federal or state officials, are of course the, a better way to do it. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that the federal government can't have a, um, a more important role than it now has in the stewardship mm -hmm. of the animals that for the moment happen to be in Montana. Right. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting idea because uh, many of us have talked for a long time about what other ways to protect, or what other ways are there to protect wildlife if you're not listed as endangered. Right. Um, but there's still a species of national significance. Is right, there right. some other mechanism sure. that you put into place that does give sure. broader national public assent? I mean, that's kind of right, what right. getting to. Yeah, I am. I'm trying to get to some different type of a, of a critique and then a management style yeah. uh, with federal authority in it. Yeah. Now, I know states ruffle about that, but land managers can get along and you can draw the, the, the laws in ways that yeah. I think most people would agree. That's really an interesting well, and exciting idea. I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's been around, but it, I, haven't it, heard, yeah. I haven't heard it in a long time and yeah. not in the way that you're presenting yeah, right uh, now, so that's great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Pat, for uh, taking the time.